morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, I guess it's the third sermon from chapter 7. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 17. We have been introduced to the great multitude in verse 9 that are the saints elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And though we, still belonging to the church militant, we find ourselves ever before the throne, represented here, the whole church saved by right of Christ's work upon the cross imputed to us. Here, John, one of the elders, one of the 24 mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation, talk about the state of those in glory. Here as I read Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I, that is John the apostle, said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall never, neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now this morning we ask that you might minister to us By the work of your Spirit, grant to us joy and a perspective that comes as we open your word and we read of your kingdom and the glorious present for the church triumphant and the glorious future that awaits we who still fight and strive against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to see this and have hope and to know what awaits the church in death or the days that are to come. Oh, Lord, grant us joy then in your presence, we pray in your name. Amen. This morning we look a little bit closer at those who are gathered around the throne. And not only who this number is, but how they are described They are those already who are clothed in white robes. We see this in verse 9, that is, they are holy. They are waving palm branches, which indicate the victory that they are experiencing because they are members of the church triumphant. They cry out to the one who gave them salvation, who holds salvation, the Lamb who is upon the throne, Christ himself. And then they fall on their faces. They fall upon their faces because even in perfection, though not yet raised bodies, not yet glorified, sin has been mortified in their flesh. They bow before Christ and they cry out to him blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. They're saying these things are true of him. This is what worship is. It is to fall on our faces before the Lord. 
and it is to ascribe to him what is true of him. It's actually surprising that as worship became more man-centered, you didn't see kneelers in churches anymore. Have y'all noticed that? You don't see kneelers often at all. When that is, in fact, according to the regulative principle, the most prescribed position worshipers are to be in before the throne. So we are to be on our faces. So if we ever get too big, maybe we'll just take the pews out and some of you are going, no. <laughs> we'll just spend some time on our knees. Some of you may have a hard time getting up at the end of worship, I would imagine. We see what these are like, what they sing, but what is true of them and will be true of them as they have been, uh, their sin has been mortified and as they await the glorification of the church and that is the final resurrection. And so this morning, we want to answer the question, who are these? And we want to see that the answer is those who are delivered. Two points then. The first, who are these? And the second, these are the delivered ones. Now, as it relates to who they are, I would argue that it is not just those who have come out of the tribulation of the destruction of Jerusalem... Those who have in times past suffered for the sake of Christ, not only for those who lived in the New Testament age, but the prophets who were put to death, and for the saints of old. But this is, in fact, the whole number of those who have been graduated out of the church militant, that is, the church on earth, at war with the kingdom of darkness, and they have become members of the kingdom or the church triumphant. Every saint that we have buried is no longer a member of the church militant. They are a member of the church triumphant. And they are near the throne. Now, you and I are near the throne. When we gather for worship, Christ says, though I am with you. He said this not just in worship, but as he was going into heaven, he said to his disciples, lo, in the Great Commission, I will be with you even until the end of the earth. Wherever two or more are gathered, in corporate congregational worship, Christ is with us. He's with us as individuals, obviously. When we gather with him in our word reading, when we pray to him, he meets with us. But this is a different kind of proximity. This is a proximity that is not frustrated by the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's a wholly different kind of proximity, and we need to be aware not only that we are near Christ as the church militant, but the quality of our proximity with Christ around the throne in our death is, in a sense, ever nearer and ever sweeter because we are not hampered by the things of this earth. Though we are in, well, we are without bodies. Though we are a soul and our souls will never die, we are nonetheless near to Christ. And this proximity ought to give us hope because it is, the, it is the next step, as it were, for the church. One day, there will be many who are in this room who will not be in this room. There will be our future generations who will be gathered here while we are gathered there and we will be worshiping around the throne. And our worship will be wholly regulated by the word of God and our perfect state. And not only are they near, but they are sheltered by the throne. 
Um, this Friday evening, my wife and I went out and got some food for ourselves, and then we got some pizza for the kids. But while we were out, if you know what happened on Friday night, there blew up a storm in Gastonia, and there was a tornado warning. And you know, it really is not terrifying at all when it comes on your phone. And you go, what is happening? And so Henry and Logan and Ellie were at home alone. Say what you want, but we're free range when it comes to our kids. And uh, two other young people were there, friends of our boys. And the siren on the phone went off. Uh, the wind began to pick up. The rain really began to fall. And so the five of them gathered in the bathroom in the basement, which is the safest place to be. Um, four of them were okay. One of them was not. And all... All that this one child cared about was that mom and dad were home. Now, I have no power to prevent the formation of tornadoes, the tornado running into our home, or whatever damage it may do. I am helpless, but not to that child. I can go hide in the basement with them, but Christ is the one who says to the storms, peace be still. And when his disciples heard that, they said, who is this that even the winds and rain obey him? And so the one who is upon the throne in Revelation is the one who doesn't just, isn't just safe from bad weather. He creates the weather. He's the chief meteorologist, as it were. And it is not just weather. It's all of the affairs of men. The scriptures speak of Christ as being able to turn the heart of a king like he can move a river. It is nothing for God to, in his sovereignty, position the stuff of earth so that it accomplishes his will immutably, without fail. And so the other idea, the other concept that we have is not just one of proximity, but shelter. In the presence of Christ, they are safe. Their immediate state, their present state, is ours by covenant and promise. And no one can take us out, our souls, out of the hand of God. But there will come a time that even when those who seek to put us to death can no longer touch us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Christ speaks of this. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Christ is speaking to those who will go out and serve as his disciples, and they are outspoken. What will happen to them? And Christ says, don't worry. It will all be okay. That even if they torture, maim, kill, they cannot touch that which is immortal. And all of those saints who've been burned at the stake, who've suffered at the mouths of the lions, who have been hung, torn to pieces, they will all be in the final resurrection, restored. And even on the occasion of their death, those who suffer in the great tribulation Go to be with Christ in glory. That's what tomorrow is for the Christian. In fact, that's what you should remember for every moment of your life. The very next moment of your life may be really bad 
but the one just after that is really, really good. <laughs> what shall we say to these things, Paul writes? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then Paul continues, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Remember, they are we. And one day we will see as they see, and we will know as they know, and we will worship Christ in perfection. The only way to improve the regulative principle is to die. <laughs> the only way to improve congregational worship on Sunday is to die. We're not there yet. Let's be faithful while we live. They cannot be touched by sun or scorching heat. Verse 16, neither shall they hunger or thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Nothing in creation can harm us. There is nothing that can interrupt, that can bring to an end the worship of the saints. This is what redeemed proximity means. Who else are they? They are those who are washed and made white. It's so good, it's said twice. We read already in verse 9 that they are clothed with white robes. And here, an explanation of that. Verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The irony, the paradox of this needs to be ever before us. The blood of Christ is what makes us holy. The red blood of Christ makes us white. It is because our pollution, our disease, that which afflicts all men is sin. It is a spiritual problem before God. We have offended his justice. Before him all are sinners, but through Christ we are made righteous. We must be washed, and these are washed. Those who are saved are washed in Christ's blood. Now, there is a lot of debate right now, and there has been debate for many centuries um, who gets to go to heaven? And you'll find a lot of ministers who are popular on television who will say, all those of sincere faith, but they don't say who the object of that faith is. Even Billy Graham at the end of his life said, if someone believes it sincerely enough, even they can go to heaven. And when did he become a universalist? What a shame. And it's not just him. It's any man who does not understand the glorious principle that it is only those washed in the blood of Christ in order to spend eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you must be washed. And the evidence of your washing is what? Fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the great promise for those even now who are made holy. Our infallible assurance is Christ's work for us. And the end of all of that, the result of our being washed in Christ Jesus, is that we spend eternity with him as his holy ones. 
These saved are washed and made white. They are also safe, not just from sun and scorching heat, the things of providence, the hardship of life, but they are safe from sin and harm. They have washed their robes. They are made white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne, and they serve him day and night. They shall neither hunger or thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd and lead them to the living fountains of water. They're safe from sin and harm. Isaiah 49, verse 10, we read, They shall never hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. One of the pictures... And one of the ideas that begins to form in your mind as you're looking at the book of Revelation is that it's not so different in terms of the state of men, so different from that of our first state in the Garden of Eden. Now, when we speak of the fourfold state of man, this is a a sort of organization of the moral state of men before the fall, after the fall, as those who are redeemed by God's mercy and then in our glorified state, Adam and Eve were put in a garden, but they were mutable. That means, morally speaking, they could change. They were free to sin or not to sin. They chose to sin. As a result of their sin, all men were thrust into a state of judgment that we cannot help but sin. None of us does what is right. No, not one. That is the state of of nature, of the fall. Then there is the state of grace, where we, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, are made, in a sense, like Adam and Eve, we can choose that which is good or that which is evil because of the Spirit that is living within us. And so you who say, I can't help it, you haven't fought hard enough. Those of you who are easy victims to sin need to pray that by God's grace, he will strengthen you. Then there is the state of glory, in which all the saints will be safe forever and there will be no more possibility of sin. You won't recognize me. I won't recognize you. (laughs) The person who probably recognized me least are the people who know me best. (laughs) But the saints of God in glory, even as they await their glorified bodies in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and we're not there yet here or in in the text or in our own lives we are safe because we are no longer plagued by the world the flesh and the devil now what i'm not saying is you should long for death to live as christ but you should not fear death because to die is more christ it is gain We are finding a a glorious depiction of what the future state of the saints is, and we should long for that. And we should long, as much as we are able, to see that manifested in our lives today. The result of the mortification of sin, even in this life, is greater joy and glorying in Christ Jesus. And there is a satisfaction that comes with that that nothing else can offer. This tender, familial engagement of filling the saints with joy in his presence and they offering to Christ 
worship, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. This is who they are. This is the worshiping, triumphant church. And as I read this, I go, I cannot wait. But until that time, there is work to be done. There is work to be done. I hope, by God's grace, you cannot wait as well. Let's look at the second point. Who are these? Secondly, these are the delivered ones. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. These members of the church triumphant are priests forever. Adam and his wife were made to be priests. They were made to minister the presence of God throughout the world. And what began in Eden was to expand to cover the entire earth. They failed in that ministry of mediating the presence of God, either by having children in that sinless state or avoiding sin to begin with. There were no babies born into a sinless world. Every child that has ever been born has been born into a broken home, broken by the fall. And where did it come from in the heart of Adam and Cain, or in, in, in Abel and Cain? Cain, just one generation removed. It is a testimony of the darkness of sin. It is a testimony of the darkness of men if they are not redeemed by Christ Jesus. But these here, they serve at the temple of Christ. Now, we read elsewhere that there is no real physical temple in heaven. At least not at this time. There is a throne room, but the temple of which we read in Revelation is really the manifestation of Christ's presence that emanates from the throne. That there is a very real sense in which you and I, as members of the church triumphant, either upon the occasion of our death, will go to be with Christ and we will serve him and we will worship him without ceasing. But in the new heavens and the new earth, what that looks like is we will begin to expand, as Adam and Eve were called to do, in a perfected, never-to-sin-again state to take the temple, as it were, and expand it throughout the universe. And you say, what will I do in glory? What you will do is to perfect, to expand, to explore, to emanate and radiate the glory of Christ to Neptune. I don't know what we'll be doing, but we won't be doing nothing. And we will be fully equipped and capably called to go forth and serve Christ night and day, and that will be our highest joy. Is that your highest joy now? Is your highest joy Christian discipleship, which is what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. To repent of your sin and to seek to walk in righteousness. Our future state is to serve as priests forever in the presence of Almighty God. Now, Christ will also do some things for us. These delivered ones, we read, will be guided or shepherded to the living fountain of waters. 
We will be, by Christ himself, in this Edenic reality where Christ would come down, as it were, and dwell with Adam and Eve and walk with them in the cool of the day. That's what you're to think of. That we will dwell with the Godhead through the person Jesus Christ. And he himself will satisfy, nourish, edify, and renew us by his presence. When Christ comes to the woman at the well, and he says, would you drink of that water from which you will never thirst again? She says, sir, how? How will you, without a bucket, deliver to me such water? And he says what? I am that water. What is Christ speaking of? He's speaking of his ability both to wash and to satisfy. That cold glass of water on a hot day when you've been working in the yard. Or when you go to the movies and there's that Coca-Cola ad and you hear the ice dumped into the cup. It's always a glass cup. They don't serve glass cups in the theater. And it's the little tinkle of ice in the glass and you go, oh no. (laughs) And then there's a and you think, they know what they're doing. What are they doing? They are wetting your appetite. They are wetting your appetite for the thing they're trying to sell you. I do not mean to diminish the glory of revelation. But what revelation ought to do is to whet the appetite of the Christian for faithfulness in this life by displaying the reward that is to come. You should leave revelation going, I can't wait. When do I get to go there? The answer to that question from the book of Ecclesiastes is, no one knows. But we must be faithful on this life. But the great benefit, the great promise of what is to come is that we will be guided to the water by Christ himself. He will shepherd them. He will lead them to the living fountains of water and they shall be satisfied. Now, there's another one that Christ will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can imagine in the midst of that storm on Friday night that that young child ran to us weeping. And that weeping was a result really of two things, fear of what could happen and the inability to face that fear without someone to protect. And it took a little while to get over it. It took a minute to calm down, get the appetite back, and rest. There will come a time for the saints who've suffered much In light of beholding the countenance of Christ, they will see him and the crying will stop. The storm is over. The pain is gone. And when I say pain, I mean the kind of pain that is inflicted by unbelievers, torture, death, murder, but also the pain of cancer, physical difficulties, those who have died in the midst of natural disasters, all of those providential pains are completely swept away in the days that are to come. 
that those who are members of the church triumphant are triumphant holy indeed. They can no longer be touched. They are in that full and final safe harbor. There will come a time of full consolation for the saints. It involves a fountain in the act of Christ wiping away our tears. This is the formal messianic act of ending the age of the millennium. And here I think in chapter 7, there is reference to something that is not yet. He will lead them to the waters, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Inasmuch as we are safe, even upon the occasion of our death, and we are ushered into the presence of Christ, there is a fullness to this that we still, and those saints who have gone before us, still wait for. Christ will intimately, fully, bring to completion the work of the church when we are all members of the church triumphant. I know this because we see this again at the end of the book of Revelation. Christ will gather us to himself. We will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there will be no crying at that table. (laughs) Only laughter and joy. You see... In the church today, it's always a mixture of things, isn't it? It's a mixture of of mourning and laughing, of what feels like success and faithfulness and also setback, trial. But in the church triumphant, there is only joy and peace and comfort and satisfaction. I'm going to look again at the book of Isaiah. In chapter 4, we read beginning in verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge." And for a shelter from storm and rain. Christ is speaking through his prophet Isaiah of the church that is to come. Of the destruction of Jerusalem in the old age. And the implementation of the new. And Christ raises or is raised from the dead. And he and his resurrection bring all the hosts that were waiting for that resurrection from Sheol. And he brings them into that state of glorified, or not glorified, but sinless rest. And until that time when Christ comes to gather all the saints to himself, they are safe, but the work of salvation is not yet complete. Rather, these are promises of a glorified future state. Now, there's a phrase that I want you to be familiar with when it comes through covenant theology and how that covenant theology is sort of implemented in light of Christ's coming, but not fully, all the way. We speak of the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet, let's, let's talk about it in relationship to the kingdom. Christ's kingdom is here on earth, but it has not yet fully come. That work of salvation is now in us, but it is not yet fully finished. There are a number of these things in the Christian life that seem to be true and not fully true. And it is the way in which God has chosen to establish 
and expand his kingdom on earth. Christ could have done it all there in Jerusalem, but he didn't. Do you know why? He was thinking of you and me. Because he had designed from before the foundations of the world were laid that he would go forth into the Gentile world and he would claim not just some, but he would claim most men and women and children for himself. This is the promise of a glorified future state. Christ will lead them to the waters. He will wipe away. But these promises of what is to come is always connected to what Christ has done. It is always the work that Christ has done for us. His finished work upon the cross is the seed. It is the foundation. It is the surety of all his promises to us. This promise can only be made by Christ. It cannot be made to us or by us. It can be made to us, but it cannot be made by us. And it can be assured only by the one who died and was raised. How do I know that Christ's kingdom will expand? Because Christ is raised. How do I know that Reformation OPC will grow? Because Christ is raised. I have every confidence. How do I know that our children will grow to be God-fearers who love the Lord and seek after him with all their hearts because Christ is raised? And one day, you and I will be meeting in a very different place, right? The parking lot is pristine <laughs> in that place. The lines are straight. They never fade. It is the glory that awaits the saints. It is our inheritance it is that place of refuge, and in Christ, even now, we have every hope and all confidence that though we are in the church militant, one day we will be members of the church triumphant. This is our promise. Let's pray.